Welcome to episode 33 of History Does You. Today we'll be talking about the transition between the British hegemony to the American hegemony. And we had a conversation with Dr. Corey Shockey, which I'm very excited about. She's had a distinguished career in government. She's worked at the State Department, the DOD. She worked at the National Security Council under the Bush administration. So I was very excited to get this opportunity. And I always like delving into the topics of sort of security, great power politics, Jamani, all of that. And we'll get into that specifically in the conversation, but maybe for some background. Really, the definition of hegemony is kind of a power that is in charge of a political system in some sense. Some states do this politically, some do it militarily, some do it economically. And these states always live in a fear of being toppled. And we see throughout history, there's a lot of great books on it, ranging from The Tragedy of Great Power Politics by, I think it's Mearsheimer. He works at UChicago. There are a lot of scholarly works examining how these hegemonies go from one to the other because these hegemonic systems can only last so long before someone tries to bring it down, either through, you know, war or political turmoil. And the vast majority of history, a lot of these conflicts have ended up in war. Now, what's interesting about the British to American transition in the hegemonic state is that it was a peaceful transition. It was gradual. It happened over a long period of time to the point where the U.S. probably asserted itself in this hegemonic state that it's been in now ever since the end of the Second World War. So we'll dive into the relationship between the U.S. and Great Britain, sort of starting the beginning when we are still a very young country in the early 1820s, when James Monroe wrote the Monroe Doctrine, which was sort of the center of American foreign policy for much of the 19th century. And then we go into the two world wars, which made our relationship much, much closer, but ultimately would bring British influence and the British hegemony to an end. And then also reflecting on what this transition means for future hegemonic transitions, specifically right now with the competition between the US and China. So I hope you enjoy the episode. She's a very reputable leader in in her field. So I hope you enjoy it. I know that I did. On today's episode, we welcome on Dr. Corey Shockey. She's the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Before joining AEI, she was the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. She has also had a distinguished career in government, working for the U.S. State Department, the U.S. Department of Defense, and the National Security Council at the White House under the Bush administration. She has also been taught at Stanford, West Point, Johns Hopkins, the National Defense University, and the University of Maryland. She has also been widely published in policy journals on the popular press, including CNN, Foreign Affairs, Politico, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. She is also a contributing writer at The Atlantic and The War on the Rocks. So welcome on. It's a great pleasure, Riley. And to start, what is your favorite subject of either history or political science to research and talk about? Why is your favorite? And how did you become interested in the hegemonic transition of Great Britain and the United States? Oh, those are all fun questions. So my favorite subject is innovation. Why do some militaries win when technology or circumstances change radically? And why can others not adapt as fast as the circumstances demand of them? So that means that practically 
anything I want to squander my valuable time doing can actually count as research. <laughs> so a new translation of the Odyssey. I can read that and it counts as work because I'm thinking about how do contemporary societies view warfare, telling the same story from 12,000 years ago in a different way. So that's my favorite part of the subject. What got me interested in hegemonic transition was with the rise of China and the challenge that poses for the United States, I wanted to understand whether there were lessons from earlier hegemonic transitions, and in particular, what made some peaceful and some violent. And I actually didn't realize before I started writing the book that there's only one peaceful transition between a dominant rule-giving and enforcing power and a rising challenger. And that transition was from British dominance of the international order in the 19th century to American dominance of it by the end of the 19th century. And what are some of the challenges that you've encountered in your field, whether it was writing your book or other challenges you've experienced in government? I mean, what are some of the difficulties you've faced? <laughs> well, working national security policy in the American government is a constant frustration because everything's hard. But also what makes it so much fun is that there's not just one way to get something done in the American government. There are 20 different ways. And so it's a constant test of creativity to when you hit a roadblock to figure out, are there other ways I can get around this problem? And the American government, the policymaking process is so porous. It's so easy to influence from outside the government that that's both what makes it so responsive to public attitudes, but also so much fun. Because if you can't get it done internal to the government, you can find ways to hit bank shots from forces outside the government to advance what you want. So both the frustration, it's actually very much like ancient Greek approaches, right? The very things that make it wonderful are also its tragic flaws. Challenges I faced when I was getting started in the field, I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a program. I've made a bunch of bad choices. I'm living proof that you can run your ship aground, not just once, but a whole bunch of times. And if you are diligent enough and tough enough and creative enough, you can find ways back to being successful. So I guess the one thing I hope you and all of your colleagues who listen to your podcast take away from it is that resilience is the fundamental trait of successful people. Great. And to get into, before we get into the hegemonic transition between the U.S. and Great Britain, which we'll be talking about today, can you kind of briefly explain what the actual definition of hegemony means and give a few sure. historical examples? Oh, it's a wonderful question because the hegemon and hegemon is the dominant power in the international order. And it's not always the richest country. It's not always the strongest country. But it's the country that is both willing and able to set the rules by which states will interact. And of course, rules don't matter unless there is an enforcement mechanism 
or there is a social compact whereby people voluntarily behave the rules. And that's going to be important when we get to talking about the United States as a hegemon. Great. To oh, I'm get... sorry, I didn't fully answer your question. What are some examples of hegemons? So Britain's a particularly interesting case because Great Britain was never by itself able to be the dominant power of the international order. But what it did time and time again across 150 years, almost 200 years, was piece together coalitions that gave it the strength to set and enforce rules. So if you think about the Napoleonic Wars, for example, Napoleon's France was unquestionably the strongest power in the European landmass. But what Britain could do is work with Spain and Portugal and Belgium and the German principalities. And because they were good alliance creators and managers, they pulled together to defeat Napoleon, then they dispersed. So they didn't have the sustainment costs of keeping the order together. Theirs was a more flexible arrangement. Other great powers at Japan and Asia in the 1930s, right? If you look at the landmass, the human capital of China, how did Japan conquer Korea, China, everywhere the eye could see? And the answer is that they were militarily dominant and used that military dominance to create what they called a co-prosperity sphere and what was actually an engine of Japanese enrichment. Great. And to get back to sort of the beginning of the 19th century when the U.S. was sort of in its very beginnings and Great Britain, as you mentioned, like the Napoleonic Wars was navigating how to try and dominate this international order. From the U.S. perspective, did the Monroe Doctrine that kind of developed and guided American foreign policy for a long time. Did that sort of embrace a sort of a skepticism of Europe and in particular Great Britain? That's such a great question. I can't give you an easy yes or no to it, which is the definition of a great political science question, right? Because for any good political science question, the answer is always, it depends. And the fun is, what does it depend on? And is that generalizable or specific to those circumstances? I didn't realize until I started writing Safe Passage that the Monroe Doctrine actually started out as a British proposal to the United States for us to jointly, cooperatively prevent the continental European countries from taking advantage of the collapse of the Spanish Empire and the nascent independence of the countries of the Western Hemisphere to prevent continental Europeans from gobbling them up. And why would Britain care about that happening? Britain cared because as the first country to industrialize, they had very strong advantages in an open trading system, right? They could make their products better and cheaper than anybody else could. So they wanted a global trading system where they had the advantage of preferential trading relations with their colonies, but nobody else could have a system that closed trade off. 
And the United States cared because we were the second industrializing country. So coming up fast behind open trade also benefited us. But we have a secondary reason that we didn't want European powers on our borders. We had to deal with Canada on our northern border. And Americans at that time were, remember, we were still a weak country, not a strong country. As late as the 1890s, there were only six American ships in our Atlantic fleet, right? So we were a weak power looking at strong European powers and thought about making this alliance with Great Britain. One of the great myths about American history is that we never favored alliances. In the case of the Monroe Doctrine, President Monroe knew this would be a big deal, knew that both Thomas Jefferson and George Washington had worried about alliances with European powers. So Monroe wrote Jefferson and Madison, the two living American predecessors who'd been president, and both of them agreed the United States should make this alliance with Great Britain in 1823. The only reason we didn't was because the British outsmarted us and got the continental powers to agree not to do it because what we had demanded of Britain was them recognizing the independence of at least one Western Hemisphere country besides the U.S. And that would likely have been a cause of war with the continental European powers. So Britain outsmarted us. And actually the sweeping language of the Monroe Doctrine that the Americas will no longer be territory for European colonization. We actually didn't have the ability to enforce that rule until about 1895. Up until then, the British Navy had to still do it for us because it was in both of our interests, even though we wouldn't make the alliance with them. And I know you mentioned earlier kind of coalition building is an important part of Great Britain trying to maintain hegemony. Throughout the 19th century, were there other aspects of British foreign policy besides coalition building that were used to try and maintain their hegemony? Yes. So Aaron Friedberg, who wrote the single best book about the last 10 years of British dominance, is called Weary Titan. And he'd be somebody great to interview for your podcast because he's actually a China expert. So fun to talk to about the nature of the China challenge. Aaron Freeberg makes a really good, really solid argument that it was the invention of the railroad more than anything else that sealed the end of British dominance. Because before you had railroads, you didn't have reliable land transportation on the Eurasian continent. It was dangerous, it was slow, and it was aggravating to try and get anywhere on the bad roads of 19th century Europe and North America. And so almost all travel and almost all trade went by sea. And the British were dominant because they controlled the seas. The Royal Navy, with its wood-sided ships and its great sailing captains, could control the flow of people and goods. Once you begin to have railroads and people can move things fast, cheaply, and reliably by land, it becomes much harder for Britain to be able to remain a major power. Great. 
And to kind of skip ahead a bit to one of the critical events in American history, which was the Civil War, what impact did that have on U.S.-Great Britain relations? Did the Civil War allow Great Britain to increase its global influence in some ways? It's an interesting question. The American Civil War was one of the last moments in time where Britain really had the ability to prevent America's continued rise to dominance. And for me, the most interesting question that I explored in Safe Passage was, why didn't they, right? They wouldn't have had to fight in the American Civil War, right? So it would have been a cheap intervention. All they would have had to do was refuse to acknowledge the quarantine, the naval blockade of the southern states. If they had done that, they had the sea power to break the Union's hold on the South. And they didn't do it. And figuring out why they didn't do it was, for me, the most interesting and actually really intensely patriotic thing I learned writing Safe Passage. Because there were two things that inhibited the British government under Palmerston from intervening in the Civil War. And they both have to do with who the United States is as a political culture. And the two things were, because we are an immigrant culture, the United States has the unique ability to reach into other countries' domestic political debates. And by 1860, the vast majority of immigration to the northern states of the United States were from Ireland and Scotland. And those family connections were so strong that the Palmerston government feared it would dramatically make more difficult controlling Ireland and Scotland by the British government if they aligned with the Confederacy. And the second thing that inhibited them was, it may not seem now like the United States in 1860 was a particularly progressive place, since women couldn't vote, Black Americans were held in bondage, Native Americans were being expunged genocidally. But if you were a white man, you had more political rights in America than any place else. Immigrants could become citizens, there wasn't a bloodline requirement. There wasn't a property requirement. So you had wider enfranchisement among white males in the U.S. And that meant you had wider enfranchisement in the United States than any place else. And the Palmerston government feared that if it sided with the Confederacy, that it would foster more demands for expanding the franchise in Great Britain because people in urban areas couldn't vote in Great Britain at the time. And so they saw what the United States represented as an immigrant culture and as one with wide political participation. Those two things were enough to prevent the dominant power in the international order from collapsing America's rise to power. Great. And to maybe skip ahead to the Spanish-American War, which was probably one of the first sort of expansions of American power, did this sort of increase U.S. prestige and the idea of the American role in the world? And how was the Spanish-American War kind of received by Great Britain? Oh, that's a hugely, hugely important topic. Because you're right, the Spanish-American War is the sort of debutante ball 
of America coming out as a great power. And uh, while it's commonplace to believe that the United States intervened in Cuba, either in order to become a great power or because Hearst newspapers fomented this yellow journalism, in actuality, it was the depredations of Spanish governance in Cuba that drive American involvement. American religious communities were hugely important in forcing the government in that direction. We get the term concentration camp from the way the Spanish pulled Cubans off their farms and put them in reconcentrados, in concentration camps, to better control them. It had a terrible decimating effect. So the human rights motivation is the big push bringing America into the war. You get the explosion. So the reason the USS Maine, which explodes in Havana Harbor, was in Havana Harbor, was in order to take American citizens safely out of Cuba. The President McKinley understood that it wasn't sabotage that caused the explosion. It was actually ordinance on the ship itself. But he intervened in Cuba, and it does bring the United States forward as a great power, less because of the quick defeat of the Spanish army and navy in Cuba than because of the defeat of the Spanish navy in the Philippines. So you get, with an awful lot of British assistance, a huge American victory in two completely separate theaters, and control of the Pacific is what actually helps America become stronger, more prosperous, and feared by other international powers. And as American influence and overseas territory began to grow, was there a divide at home over the merits of pursuing this sort of foreign policy, especially in a way that countries such as Great Britain had in the past? I love that question. Because yes, there's a period of about 15 years from about, well, 1895 to about 1910, where the United States behaves just like any other great power, right? Gunboat diplomacy at all of the worst elements of colonial activity. The United States is doing it in Samoa and Hawaii and the Philippines and Central America. But attitudes change very quickly in the United States. And Americans don't want to be that kind of great power. So you see as early as the First World War, the United States striving to be a different kind of great power, one that reshapes the international order as a macrocosm of our domestic political compact. That is, that people have rights and they loan them in limited ways to governments for agreed purposes. And that self-determination of political communities is the only valid way to get representative government. And so Wilson's 14 points, the terms by which the United States will become involved in World War I, and then his proposals at the Versailles Conference the creation of the League of Nations, right? That we're going to create a different kind of political order that doesn't have monarchs and that doesn't have backroom political dealing that's going to empower people to take responsibility for their outcomes. And it is ironic, but also 
I think, illustrative that it's Americans who aren't quite ready for that. They don't want to take those kinds of responsibilities. It's not until after World War II when people had lived through two terrible world wars and the Great Depression that the United States was ready to actually take responsibility for building a different kind of international order, an order whereby we advantage states that treat their citizens the way we treat our citizens and that have open markets and free elections and civil rights. Now, of course, it is deeply grievous that Black Americans still don't have those rights in the United States at the time we're reordering the international order, but you can see where it's headed. And it makes the United States a different kind of great power than we had seen before in history because it's voluntary for people to opt into the American order, right? We don't force Britain to be an ally. We don't force France to be an ally. When Charles de Gaulle withdrew from NATO's integrated military command in 1965, 66, Lyndon Johnson, president of the United States, was asked, are you really going to let France throw the United States out of the country? We liberated France from the Nazis. And Lyndon Johnson's response was, if a man asks you to leave his house, you take your hat and go. And what's great about having created a consensual order from the American perspective is not only does it advance our values in the world, but it also makes it a lot less onerous to sustain the order because you don't have to enforce it very often because since we don't wring every last ounce of benefit for ourselves out of the order, we create rules that are mutually beneficial. And so other countries see that, particularly smaller countries, see that as their best opportunity to achieve their objectives. And so while America's allies don't do as much as we would want them to do in the world, no great power has ever had as much voluntary cooperation as the United States gets from the countries that are friends and partners in the world. And to wrap up our conversation on the 19th century, was there ever a serious chance of conflict between the United States and Great Britain? If so, when and where? Oh, yeah. At all of the different inflection points. In my book, Safe Passage, I think I have eight or nine that I look at where there's a serious risk of conflict for the United States. Even as late as 1940, Franklin Roosevelt threatens Winston Churchill that if they keep their alliance with Japan, if they keep playing footsies with Japan, the United States would stoke insurrection in the British Empire. The time we came closest to actual war with Great Britain is 1895, during an obscure crisis of Venezuela repudiating its debts to Great Britain. Britain does what great powers at that time do. It lands Marines at the port of Corinto and takes possession of the port. The United States wasn't particularly interested in the subject. Grover Cleveland, who was the American president, was so opposed to imperialism that he refused to proceed with the annexation of Hawaii. He withdrew it from Senate consideration. 
He thought the Monroe Doctrine was a troublesome idea. He had no intention of honoring. And then what happens, again, a very American story, an American citizen who's a paid lobbyist for the Caudillo running Venezuela starts writing editorials in newspapers all over the United States, arguing that the Monroe Doctrine was 70 years of established policy and Grover Cleveland was failing the United States. Cleveland mostly ignores that, but he ran a very loose government and his secretary of state didn't have much to do. And so only the secretary of state writes this 10,000 word cable to the British explaining why the United States should arbitrate this dispute. To the British, it seemed kind of crazy. So they just ignored it. And it was that ignoring of an American diplomatic overture that outraged Grover Cleveland, right? It was the disrespect. Going back to Thucydides, you remember he writes that the main causes of war are fear, honor, right? And it's honor that gets provoked. So Grover Cleveland, who doesn't favor imperialism, goes to the United States Congress and gets a unanimous declaration of support for the policy of going to war with Great Britain at a time when the United States only had six ships in its Caribbean Navy. So we would have lost that war. But what happens to stay the hand of violence is that because Britain and America were both democracies by then, you had civil society linkages between the two. 354 members of the British House of the Parliament write an open letter to the American Congress asking for peaceful resolution of our disputes. Even the heir to the British throne writes a public letter in an American newspaper saying that war between Britain and the United States would be fratricide. And we begin to feel so similar to each other that it buys the space for reconsideration of the policy by both governments. And Britain agrees to allow arbitration, and the United States in the arbitration gives Britain more than they were even seeking to get by violence. So it ends up being a bad outcome for Venezuela and a great outcome for Britain and the United States. Right. And you mentioned earlier the world wars, which are probably two of the most consequential events of the 20th century. Did the world wars help solidify sort of a peaceful U.S.-Great Britain relationship and eventually pave the way for the transition from the British hegemony to the American hegemony? So the second world war does. The first world war, there's much more friction in the transatlantic relationship. Even though the United States is essential to the Western victory in World War I, it leaves Britain deeply indebted to us. And I think the transition from British to American dominance happens in 1895 when the Salisbury government accepts American that the United States can set the rules of how Britain will behave internationally. By World War II, though, you do get largely through the great marketing and salesmanship of Winston Churchill this notion of a special relationship. And because Britain, as the last European holdout against Nazi Germany, 
their strategy for maintaining their independence was bringing the United States into the war. And they were overt about it. And the deal Franklin Roosevelt strikes with the Atlantic Charter before the United States is even in the war is that Britain will support self-determination for all peoples, will support an open trading regime. Doesn't that sound a lot like Woodrow Wilson in World War I? And doesn't it sound a lot like uh, the international order that the United States created? But it also is the death knell of Britain's ability to sustain its empire. And the United States makes clear that we won't help them, which is manifest most directly in 1956 during the Suez Crisis, when Britain and France attempt to prevent Egypt from nationalizing the Suez Canal, and the United States threatens to shut off financing, essentially to collapse the British economy if they don't cede to Egypt, and they are forced to. And to ask specifically about the First World War, did Great Britain seek out American support with the knowledge that it could ultimately undermine its global influence and increase American power throughout the world? They definitely worried about that. They didn't want it to happen, but they definitely worried about it. So much so that in 1916, the British government did an internal study of whether the United States could force their capitulation if we wanted to, and they concluded that we could. And to ask specifically about the Second World War, on the interesting aspects, I think American officials and generals were always skeptical of committing resources to campaigns in the Mediterranean and the Middle East and the Balkans because of the belief that the British were trying to in some way maintain their hegemonic and imperial power. Do you think in your research, do you find you know, similarities in their skepticism? Oh, that's an interesting question that I'm honestly not quite sure how to answer. I'm going to have to think about that one, my friend. You stumped me. <laughs> no worries, but maybe the follow-up. I know you mentioned 1895 in your research is when you think American hegemony officially started. Do you think the end of the Second World War changed that aspect a little bit? Was it simply the cost of Great Britain fighting two world wars that eventually brought their influence to kind of where it is today? So let me answer that by linking it back to your prior question, now that I've had a little bit of time to think about it. So what the United States, what made the Anglo-American relationship unique from the 1870s to about the 1920s was the belief both by Britain and the United States that our two countries were unique in the world, that we were democracies and therefore had more in common with each other than we had. So solidifying the relationship as a twosome. And what the United States realizes in World War I is that we may actually have the ability to advance freedom far beyond that to create an international order, representative governments that favor free markets and free people. And so Britain becomes less important in American calculations, not because we love Britain less or they're less democratic, but because other countries become more democratic. So Britain becomes one of many, and that's why it becomes much less important to the United States. 
And to ask some concluding questions about this hegemonic transition, do you think the similarity... Ridley, I'm only going to have the chance for time for one more concluding question. One more, okay. Do you think the transition between British and American hegemony, or what do you think the transition between British and American hegemony tells us about future transitions, specifically with the relationship between the U.S. and China? That is exactly the right concluding question because it's the big important one for current international order and for the risks of war. What made the Anglo-American transition peaceful was because we were both democracies, you had the buffering that our civil societies could create. We felt similar enough and we had enough connectivity between the two societies that governments were had the chance to reconsider acts of war and it insulated us against violence because we felt similar. This China does not feel similar to the United States. It's a repressive country that seeks to keep Communist Party control by suppression of individual rights and liberties. And If you look at Chinese behavior in the South China Sea, the imposition of the national security law to Hong Kong in violation of their treaty with Great Britain, they have violence along the Indian border. It's a very aggressive China, and it's not a China that wants the international order. It's not just that they want to be dominant in this existing order. They want to change it as we change the order to be a macrocosm of their domestic political order. So unless you want repressive governments and the end of individual liberties, none of your listeners should be complacent about the China challenge and about the necessity of the United States and other free societies being willing to defend an international order where people have rights and they loan them in limited ways to government. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Corey Shockey. I think that she offered some brilliant expertise and takes on some of the unique challenges of the U.S.-British relationship and what that sort of means for the United States in the future. And again, it sort of depends on how I interview people. But again, this is probably one of the more reputable people I've been able to interview. So I definitely want to take full advantage of that. So I'm hoping to do... Not necessarily topics similar to this, but covering sort of topics in both international studies and security. Because I think like with a podcast, it's much easier to go into depth and kind of explain these things over in these forms rather than either having to take a class or something like that. So, I mean, that's why I always enjoy doing this because I think it's great to sort of learn about topics that you probably wouldn't necessarily think you could or had the ability to because I like to take these maybe more complicated topics that people sort of shy away from because they think, oh, like I'm not smart enough to read about it. I don't have the time to do it and try and simplify it as much as possible and show how relevant it is today. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. Again, I know that I always learn a lot when I do these interviews and I'm sure, sure most of you do as well. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll be having some more great episodes coming out over the next couple of weeks. Keep listening. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. 
As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.